there is a subject that has um, many complex connections which develops out of the one of the incidents or issues mentioned in this week's Parsha, this week's Torah portion and which relates to, to all of life really in the deepest the most uh, and broadest way so let's try to let's try to look at that. Generally, generally, we would call the topic the issue of chesed. Chesed means usually mistranslated as the quality or the tray of kindness or of um, kindliness or of giving, but it's a much deeper, much deeper concept than that. Really, chesed is really the in the seven energies, if you like, or emanations that build the world, it's the first of them. And on a deeper plane, it is really the, <coughs> the outflow of giving or projection of self into the world in an unlimited fashion. It's the, the beginning of any process, and of course it must be the ultimate end point. If, that's, if it's the point of beginning, then it must contain within it <coughs> the definition of its completion as well. The, uh, <coughs> the expression that the sages <coughs> talk about is Olam chesed yibone, the, the phrase. The world is built from chesed. It doesn't only mean that the world manifests kindliness. It means that its point of origin is this outflow of origin itself. Everything's based on this movement from within the self to, to beyond the self. Chesed actually means, literally translated, it means it means a giving or a going beyond. I mean, the illustration of that perhaps is that the, the Torah uses the word chesed not only for kindliness and giving, it also uses it for immorality. For immorality. Because the concept of, an, of immorality is an unlimited giving. That's exactly what it is. It's a giving in places where giving should not be manifest. Lack of limitation in giving. This is not necessarily, that means it's not necessarily a good quality. It's simply the quality of moving beyond self and giving ultimately. That can obviously has a positive application. It obviously can have a negative application where the, good, where the giving should have been controlled or, or disciplined. <coughs> the practical importance of the subject, not a theoretical subject, the practical importance of the subject, perhaps to put it in the sharpest terms, is that when the sages tell us about the pre-Messianic trials and tribulations, the pre-Messianic ordeals that we'll go through, the so-called birth pains of the Messianic era, then the, the Gemara says, what should a person do? What should a person do to be saved from those pains? Because the pain of the pre-Messianic, the the, the uh, cataclysmic events or the Armageddon-type scenarios that are described as being possible pre-Messianic scenarios are so potentially painful that the Talmudic sages themselves say, let it come, but let me not see it. Not, not, although you know it's a labor that brings the child into the world, nevertheless, the labor is extremely painful, dangerous, painful. So the Talmud asks, what can you do to protect yourself from those pains and dangers? The Talmud says, A person should involve himself in Torah, and in the in again simply translated acts of kindness. Acts of kindness means are practical terms if you're a very practically oriented person, then the way you interpret this is you involve yourself in Torah learning and application. You give, you you do, you manifest kindness. That is the way you can <coughs> you can hope that in measure for measure you will be spared, you will be shown kindness too. That means in the pre messianic ordeals and trials, if you have put out kindness and you've you've shielded others from suffering and you've made their you've given, then you can expect to be given yourself because that will be a measure for measure deserved consequence. But there's something much deeper here and let's see if we can try and let's see if we can work through it this evening. There's a lot to talk about. It's a complex subject. But <coughs> let's do our best. I mean, again, if you, if you don't like theory, you're looking for practice, we said it already. Right? I, I did my duty, right? But let's see if we can amplify the understanding and go a little bit deeper. What does it have to do with this week's parsha? The discussion in the Torah this week includes 
<coughs> a description of the princes, the, 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 the princes of each tribe, the Nasim, the leaders, if you like, of each of the twelve tribes who brought their gifts in an act of dedication of the Mishkan, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, whatever you want to call it, the Mishkan in the desert, which was the precursor of the Beis Hamikdash, the temple, <coughs> that, which, that, that small tent of meeting which accompanied the Jews through their travels in the desert, when that was finally built, it was dedicated or inaugurated, what we call Chanukah Samizbech, the ignition, if you like, of that tent of meeting between us and Hashem, between God and the Jewish people. And the princes of each tribe brought their gifts, and the Torah goes into extreme detail, talking about the details of what each one brought. And it repeats, for each one repeats the details, and there's a, a, a tremendously rich description of what they brought. The Midrashim say, the Talmud says, Rashi comments from Midrashim, <coughs> that the reason they brought these gifts, these rich gifts, they were the first to bring. That means, that you have to understand here, it's not only were they bringing acts, bringing um, objects that would be used in the act of dedication of the, of the altar and the Mizbeach, but they were the ones to inaugurate. There's a key, here, key idea here. And that is that that which they are bringing is in inauguration or ignition, the spark of, of firstness or beginning of this relationship that will exist between Hashem and us in that focused place of meeting. And noting the fact that they are the first to bring, so Rashi says the following, Rashi, the great commentator, quoting classic early sources, says this, the reason they were the first to bring is because they had made an error in this department previously. Namely, that when the Mishkan was built, not dedicated, but back when it had been built, these great leaders, these great superlatively wealthy leaders, had come forward and said like this, let us bring what is lacking after everyone else has brought. Let everyone else bring, because the call went out that all the Jews should bring of their own material, their own wealth. They were all in incredible category of wealth after having taken all the wealth of Egypt, both in Egypt and at the splitting of the sea, they brought of their wealth for the construction of the Mishkan. So these princes said, let's see what is not brought and we will complete the lack. Whatever's needed, we'll complete. Very practical arrangement. Let everyone bring what's needed. And then when we have a stockpile of all the ingredients that are needed to build the Mishkan, we guarantee whatever remains. Whatever's been omitted or forgotten or inadequate, we will in fact bring what remains. There was actually a problem with that because the Jews brought so much the Jewish people brought so much, there was an excess, and they were hard put to find something that in fact was lacking. In fact, they did in the end find something. And they, they were criticized for that. Why? Because the proper attitude is not, let's see what remains, and if there's a need, we'll do it. Of course it was sincere. But there's something sensitive lacking, which is, we should be the first to bring, not, not complete after the act of bringing. There's a, there's a lack here of the spontaneity of the moving out beyond self that should be done with alacrity before even we see, as it were, whether there's a need. Now, that's a problematic idea. Surely giving is only in response to a need? Surely giving is only in response to a need? This was the ultimate giving in response to a need. Let's see what is truly needed, that which specifically is lacking, and let us bring that. They were criticized for that. Criticized, they should have been the first to bring, not only the last to make up that which is lacking, and therefore they corrected it at this juncture. When it was constructed, the Mishkan, and now was the moment of dedication, inauguration, they were the first to bring, and in this they expiated their, their imperfection done previously when they had in fact been the last and not the first. That's what our sources say. And this theme follows itself through in many ways. That this quality of, this quality of giving has to be expressed in that way, that there needs to be a spontaneity, a, a, a certain... The Maral talks about it in an essay on the quality of this characteristic of giving. Maral points out very interesting and, and beautiful things. For example, the Talmud says, the Talmud says that gmilus, gmilus chasodim, that means the act of giving is bigger than stocker. Stocker means charity. Charity, after all, is a giving. But the Kabbalistic notion, or the deeper notion of charity, of stocker, is that it's a combination of Din, which means that which is needed and appropriate, and giving. It's a combination of right and left. Chesed, being only on the right, is greater than charity. Why? So the, enigmatically there, the Talmud says that the reason it's greater is because stocker is done only with poor people. You give charity to those who need. Chesed is done with poor and rich. You can give of yourself to somebody who could use more too, not only somebody who has a lack. That's an enigmatic statement. Secondly, charity is done only with your possessions or your money, and chesed is done even with your body, because you can personally go and help, that's called chesed. And third, 
is that charity is done only to the living. Chesed is done even to the dead. Because burial, for example, right? Burial of the dead is considered a tremendous act of chesed, almost an ultimate act of chesed, because no thanks can there be manifest, right? You really are... The vested interest of doing it because there will be appreciation is really lacking in, in this... Of course, it's impossible to... It's impossible in this life to do an act of pure chesed. Because there's always a vested interest, right? There's always a vested interest. Even if you do it for somebody who can't say thanks, so a person who is aware of what he's done will then take extra pride in the fact that he did it with no thanks. <laughs> so that, and, and, and if it costs you dearly and you suffer, you'll take even more egotistical pride in the fact that and I suffered for it and they didn't thank me. And that is a serious issue. So it's impossible really to do a pure act of giving. We always have the... And it's not unhealthy. It's not unhealthy to enjoy the giving. It's paradoxical because the enjoyment means... Uh, what we're talking about here, however, is being as mature as possible in this area which means that as far as possible the motivation should be the giving, and the side benefit or the fringe benefit should be the fact that you enjoy it too. But when the, when the motivation is the enjoyment, right, when you engage in a relationship giving to someone else because you enjoy giving to them, they know more than an object of your unselfishness. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's useful because they get something out of it, but it's not reliable. Sometimes you can swamp a person that way or do them harm because you want to do good, right? Not... It's a very delicate and difficult balance here. So the Maral says like this, he says, why is it better, what, what is the ultimate meaning of these acts of giving called chesed, that you do even with the dead, you do even with your body, right? You do even with those who don't necessarily need. What is being discussed here? Maral says very beautifully in Fundamental Principle, is that it's not just that they are, so to speak, quantitatively greater. That means you have only one field of opportunity with stocker, namely poor people. You have a greater field of opportunity with chesed because you can even give to people who... That's the misunderstanding. Maral says that there's a fundamental difference here. There's a qualitative difference here, not just quantitative. And that is that... The difference is this. He puts it exquisitely. He says this, that... Paraphrasing what he says, that... Giving where there's a need is entirely different than giving where there's not necessarily a need. Meaning this, giving where there's a need is occasioned by the need. Where there's a need, you respond. The other type of giving is giving because the need, if there is one, is the need to give. Right? Not because there's a need to which you respond, but because you start with a spontaneous desire to give. Completely different thing. I mean, you see this illustrated, perhaps the, the, the essential or the prime, primary Torah example is by the founder of Judaism, Abraham, Avram Avinu, he sits at the, at the door to his tent, waiting for strangers to come by who are hungry so that he can feed them. He's just been circumcised, he's in exquisite pain, and, 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 and he's disappointed and distressed that, that the day is so hot that there are no travelers. To the extent that God, Hashem, has to, has, to send him, has to send him guests. They token guests only because they're angels. They don't eat. They only pretend to eat. But he's so distressed by not having the opportunity to give that Hashem takes pity on him and sends him victims. Sends him... Recipients, right? So that he can he can give. There's a deep message here. I mean, if they're angels and they don't really eat, they don't really need his giving. Again, there's something problematic here. If you if he's so intent, intent upon giving, surely the giving is meaningful where the recipient benefits. Isn't it only an empty tokenism if I give to somebody who is only? There's a whole cabalistic discussion about whether those angels really ate or not, whether they really did eat or not, because angels don't eat. So in what sense was their pretense at eating? I'll Kabbalistic discussion about that. But ultimately they certainly didn't need it. At best they obliged. Because why is the, why is the ultimate act of giving in the Torah taught where the recipient in fact gets nothing? And the explanation here is a very sensitive explanation. Is that This is exactly what's being taught. Is that the ultimate act of giving is where it's a pure giving. Where the recipient's need is not the relevant point. There's a, deeper, there's a deeper level of giving here. There's one level of giving you respond to a need. That will be occasioned by the need and defined by the need. But the true measure of the, of the dignity and the greatness of, of the individual is his manifesting the desire to give, yet be, not because there's a need, but because he has a need to give. And ultimately when it manifests and he does give, it's, it's taught in a context where the, where, where the recipient is irrelevant. On the contrary, that's exactly the point that's being taught. Abraham, Avram Avinu, is the middle of Chesed. He is those, the first of those seven great characters who come to the world, who subsume all, he subsumes all the others. And his defining characteristic is nothing other than giving. And therefore the teaching here is a giving where the recipient, as it were, is irrelevant. 
Now, this leads to many complexities and complications. First of all, first of all, a pure giving where the recipient is irrelevant can cause many problems. Right? Put it to you this way. The, uh, the way it's put like this, and, and again, badly misunderstood, the Talmud says that, that in, in real giving relationships, for example, a Rebbe and a Talmud, a teacher and his disciple, so there, in that, in that classic relationship in Torah, parent to child, or, or perhaps even in some ways even more deep, is a Torah teacher with his, with his student or students, there the expression is that more than the calf wants to suckle, the cow wants to nurse. That's the, that's the classic and poetic expression, the metaphor. More than the calf is thirsty and needs to drink, the cow wishes to, to give. The misunderstanding here, and again, a classic sources make this explicit. Rav Basaman used to put this across very, very clearly. The misunderstanding is like this, that more than the calf is thirsty, the cow is heavy with milk. So there's a biological need here. The need of the calf is to drink because it's thirsty. The need of the cow is to get rid of the milk because she's heavy. That's a tragic misunderstanding. The cow doesn't want to give because she's heavy with milk. The cow wants to give because she wants the calf to drink. There's a complete difference here. The one who wants to give because he has a need to give is not necessarily going to give what's good for the recipient at all. On the contrary, it might be harmful. The one who wants to give, not because he wants to give, but because he wants the recipient to receive, will give what the recipient needs. But the paradox we're talking about here is that the recipient, you've been taught here, that the giver has a very powerful personal need to give. But the mature version of that need is to give what the recipient needs. That's a very artful, that's a very artful and mature balance that needs to be struck. To give because you want to impress or have the pleasure of giving is not at all what's necessarily good for the recipient. To give only because the recipient needs and you are stimulated to respond is wonderful, but that's called stalker. That's not... What we're looking for here is a very powerful drive to give, and yet it is moderated by wanting to give that which is genuine goodness. That which is genuine goodness is what the recipient needs. This kind of giver will give where it's appropriate and have the kindness to not give where it's not appropriate, because that's the ultimate giving at that stage. Just like giving to a child too much will spoil that child, will overfeed or spoil the child. So the real, the real test of the maturity of the giving of the parent is where the parent knows when not to give, and that's as much an act of love and giving as the original giving. That's the, that's the harmony that's being sought here. I mean, he himself, he taught us this... Uh, he was very striking in this. Uh, he was one of the Torah masters of the last generation, and that he, I think, was the defining characteristic of his life. I mean, when he, after he left the world, and we, we read what he wrote in his will. Right? I mean, remember it was read out publicly at a meeting we had at the time. I remember he, what he wrote there was that after I die, no one's allowed to say anything about me. You know, a hesper, a eulogy. He ordered that there should be no eulogies at all. Nothing. But only if my rabbit's still alive, then I permit, then out of honor to her, it's not appropriate that she should, just because I have the humility not to want people to speak about me, doesn't mean she needs to suffer. And therefore, if she's still alive, somebody can speak. But only one person, and he can only say the following. So he said, only one must be it. Only one has spit, only one must be it, and he may only say the following. <laughs> And the, what he may say is that I tried all my life to teach the, every student according to his need. And then I realized that this was actually the conscious goal of his life. It wasn't just that he was talented in this area. He had a conscious... And then I thought back and I remembered I was once sitting in the Osamech Yeshiva when it was a beginner's introductory class where many, many advanced students used to sneak in to see how he would teach the beginners because he insisted on teaching the rank beginners. And I remember once a question from a young a young man who arrived that day with no Jewish background at all, and he, he sat face to face with one of the greatest personalities in the Jewish world, in the Torah world, and he asked a question that was a good question, but it was asked in a slightly, perhaps disrespectful or aggressive fashion. But it was one of those questions that have an answer that is just one of those answers that you, you know, the, one of those questions you long to be asked, because you can take the question and plaster him thinly, you know across the walls. You know. and, 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 and I was relishing hearing that answer. And Rav Asman looked at him for a long time with those amazing blue eyes and he said to him, you're not ready for the answer to that question. 
And the, the young man was taken aback, and he, and he said, Rav continued. After the class, I went up to him, and I said, Rav why didn't you answer him thus and thus? So he said to me, because what would he have said if I would have done that? And he then proceeded to show me how the conversation would have continued and would have ended in disaster. So he said, I had to decide, leave him with an unsatisfactory conclusion of no answer, or say something that would not have been good for him at that point. Now the novice, right, would have plastered the wall thinly with this individual, and not have won the, won the battle, but not won the war. What happened to that young man was he stayed in the yeshiva, and three weeks later I had the privilege of learning with him, and he asked me the same questions, and I plastered him thinly <laughs> across the walls, because, because then he was ready for it. And, uh, and in fact, he went on to, to, to learn seriously. But I learned from that great man that what's needed is not, you happen to have what to give, that's not necessarily what needs to be given yet. The question is, what does the, what does the receiver need at this point? The desire to give because you have to give isn't necessarily, that could be purely selfish. A purely expression of self. Maturity means giving what's needed and not giving what's not needed because that is the giving at that point. And this theme, this theme follows itself throughout all of Torah. The, uh, the spontaneity of the giving that they had, they, had, they had given before but only responding to a need. The deeper message they were taught and they teach us, of course, here is that, is that the giving should, there should be a primary desire <coughs> that comes before the recipient presents himself. Right? Of course it's not that which is a, a desire to give, only because it feeds me. That's the opposite of the quality. But it's the desire that a recipient should present himself with needs, so that I can have the privilege of giving. You know, the, uh, the Talmud says in another place, that, uh, that you, should be like, you should be like Hashem. You should try to emulate His ways. That you should walk in His ways, as it were. You should walk this month of Sivan, in case you... I'm sure your minds are racing ahead of me, as usual. This month of Sivan, Kabbalistically, is called walking. You know that? Each of the twelve months, each of the twelve zodiac signs has a different faculty of the body. Different part of the body and different faculty. Are you aware of that? The zodiac of this month is the left leg, and the action of the body is walking. The Torah was given in Sivan, right? Just a few days ago. And the Torah is called Halakha, which means... Walking. Jewish law is called walking. That's very interesting. In, in, in other languages, law is called law. In, in Torah, law is called the process of walking. Halakha means the way you walk. The left leg, incidentally, means the balance. Left always means the leg that completes the act of walking. The right leg is always first. Halakhically, you're required to step forward with the right foot. You step forward with the right foot. The act of moving the left foot is the perfect balance where the walking itself is, there's a harmony between the two. It's walking forward. That's what a human being is regarded as. So you have to walk, as it were, in Hashem's ways, in God's ways. So how does the Talmud illustrate it? It says, just like He clothes the naked, you should clothe the naked. How do we know that? Because He made clothes for Adam and Eve. Adam and Chava. Just like He visits the sick, because He visited, yeah, so you should visit the sick. Just like He feeds the hungry, and we have examples, you should feed the hungry. So the Talmud, the, 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 the authority, the Talmudic sage who quotes this, yes, is quoting these examples. The question that's raised subsequently is, in the later commentaries, they say, why are all the examples that are given here only examples of copying, emulating Hashem in His kindness? What about emulating Him in His faculty of din, of justice? Why doesn't it say that exact retribution like He does, be jealous like He is, punish like He does? After all, let's be consistent. And here the explanation is that the concept of emulation that we're talking about here in the sense of walking is always that development which takes the self to a new place, which is a faculty of chesed. Where you copy him in terms of justice and, and vengeance and, and in, in appropriate places is not the discussion here. Whether you should or shouldn't is a different issue. The mode that we're talking about here is specifically the mode of emulation in terms of kindness, in terms of the going beyond self and giving. And that's why those examples are given. And of course, it's no accident that the examples that are given are interpersonal. The interpersonal giving we're talking about here, although there are other examples of giving, to discuss them. But here the examples are interpersonal. Because the Torah's primary teaching of how you give is giving to others. That's not the primary mode of being. But the, and the reason, of course, is because in giving to others, the message is that the focus has to be, again, on the very powerful desire to give, 
but to focus on that which is other. We discussed here some weeks ago, we had the opportunity to talk about the idea that in the giving of the Torah, the Ten Commandments are given on two separate tablets, right? Two luchos. The first are those mitzvahs that are the five primary mitzvahs between man and God, and the second are the five primary mitzvahs between man and man. Yeah? And it's fascinating that they are given on two separate, uh, two separate sets. Although ten is always the Kabbalistic number of perfection, and had they been monolithic, you wouldn't have had any objection. The Torah teaches a powerful message here, that there are five mitzvahs that are primary between man and God, and there are five mitzvahs that are primary between man and man. Why are they separated? Because the message here is fundamental, and it's so easy to forget. The message is here that there are two separate categories of what we call mechaev. That means that I have a mechaev in two areas. That which obligates me has two sources. The one source that obligates me is Hashem, God. But there's a separate source of obligation, and that's you as a human being. Of course you obligate me as a human being only because you're a product and emanation of Hashem Himself. That's absolutely true. The reason I'm not allowed to kill is because a human being has value because he's B'Tselem Elohim. That means you as a human being have value other than other biological entities because you are more directly in a divine image. Of course that's true. And therefore when I honor you and give to you, I am in fact honoring your source. And in fact there's no doubt, obviously, that I'm fulfilling a mitzvah when I honor you by respecting your life, or by respecting your integrity in whichever way it is, or not coveting your possessions, I am fulfilling also my obligation between me and my <coughs> Hashem. But, the, but, the, but the, the new message here, which is so easy to miss, is that there's a separate category of Mechaev. That means you as an individual obligate me. Why is this so important to, to emphasize? Because an extremely religious position, an extremely religious position, might assume that the only thing that counts is God. Why do I visit when you're sick? Why do I visit you when you're sick? Only because he commands me. That's wrong. That's wrong. Because if I visit you when you're sick, as we pointed this out, if I visit you when you're sick because he commands me, and I don't care, I don't care about you, I'm being very religious here, then it, it comes out where we can come out extremely krum. Krum means crooked. Why? Because if I'm visiting you only because I'm commanded by him and you don't count, then one of the consequences, for example, will be that the sicker you are, the better. The sicker you are, the better. Because there's a juicier mitzvah here. If you are really sick, if you're suffering badly, and especially if it's really messy, and, and, and you know, perhaps gory too, you know, then, 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 then that's a first-class mitzvah. Whereas if, for example, I come and visit you, and by the time I've got there, you've had the chutzpah to get better, <laughs> right? Then, you know, that, 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 that's not proper. That is not appropriate. I mean, you see how crooked this can come out. Why? Because the human being that you're relating to here is simply the object of a mitzvah. And therefore, what you mean is when you go and visit him, you simply want to shake him like a lulav, that's all. And like you want a lulav, that's mahuda, you want a beautiful esrog, you want somebody who's really sick and suffering because you shake him better. Now, the message here, of course, is that is that what obligates you here, the form that this mitzvah takes when you honor Hashem and you obey your divine command is to care about Him. That's a fundamental message here. The training should be that you would do it even if you weren't commanded. This solves many problems. I'll just share with you one of them. That in the so-called Baal Tshuva world, those who... It actually affects the, the world of those who are brought up in a religious environment and particularly acutely involves those who are brought up in a non-religious environment. Many people will tell you that they grew up in a non-religious environment and when they became more religiously knowledgeable, <coughs> more practicing, more observant, they have a problem with spontaneity. They have a problem with spontaneity. Why? Because a person who had a rich emotional life in the non-religious mode acted spontaneously. If someone was sick and they went to visit, it's because they welled, they welled up in them the desire to help. It was a very warm and rich emotional experience, so they went and did it. <coughs> but when you start doing things because you're religiously obliged, the spontaneity automatically is taken away. Why are you visiting this person who's sick now? Because you're obliged. It's a mitzvah. Which means automatically it becomes a cold act. That's the nature, that's the nature. Because you visit him because you're obliged. And you know that he knows that you're only coming because you're obliged. And even worse, you know that he knows that you know that you're there because you're obliged to. So there's no warmth in the mitzvah at all. You're both going to be looking at your watch because after all, it's an obli- There's a problem. It's a problem. And people who move into a world of obligation, and the Torah is all obligation, often experience a problem of spontaneous warmth. Even in the depth of marriage, in the intimacy of marriage, for example. What was previously, perhaps, a deeply emotional, spontaneous expression may turn out to be technical observance. It's a problem. 
The fundamental misunderstanding here is that what the Torah wants is the, uh, is the paradox of an obligation of spontaneity. What, what's needed here is to visit the person because, he's, because you're obliged to, but the mode of doing it is feeling for him. So the training here has to be a rich training in... in yeah. Of course, it's a much broader thing than the original spontaneity, because the original spontaneity is only where it applies. Where it applies. So when I feel it, I feel it. When I don't, when it's the kind of messy I don't like, I don't go. When it's an obligation, I train myself to want and to give all, in all places that are necessary. Much deeper, richer training, of course, but it's much harder to do. People who grow up in the religious world don't often, often don't feel this as sharply, because they're brought up with a notion that things are obligations. They have a more dull pain in this area. Those who grow up in the, in the non-religious world and move into this often find this, this schism, this dichotomy, it's because of a misunderstanding of the nature of interpersonal, interpersonal relations. But the concept here, again, is that delicate and paradoxical balance between a giving which is spontaneous, and yet behind that spontaneity there's an obligation. It's not let the one damp, damp the other. Let's take this a little bit further. Let's take this a drop further. There's another facet to moving beyond the self, right, which is also paradoxical. Right, and it manifests itself many ways, in many ways in the Torah. Let, let's try and approach it like this. There are many questions you can ask that bring out, the, that bring out this difficulty, but let, let, me, let me share with you at least one or two. Here's one example. You know, the Sodomites, the city of Sodom, Stoim, was destroyed because it was extremely iniquitous, extremely perverted in all possible ways, brutally perverted and uh, immorally perverted, extremely brutal. In fact, you know that the ideology in Stoim was that if you went against the ideology, that the, the treatment was brutal. For example, there they had, a, they had a closed policy that there was no giving to anyone outside of their society. If you gave charity, for example, you were brutally handled, right? Lot, who lived in that city, his daughter was killed by the people of Stoim because she gave food to a stranger. Uh, the major says they tied her down on the roof and smeared her with honey and let the bees sting her to death. Why? Because she gave to someone from outside of that society. They were extremely brutal. If, you, if a traveler arrived in Stoim, the way they handled him was, if he was longer than the bed, they cut his feet off. They cut, and if he was shorter than the bed, they racked him apart to fit the bed. The only debate in Stoim was which end you cut off. That's, the only, that's how they handled people who needed kindness. So extremely, extremely brutal. Sodom, right? Sodom is, 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 the, is the metaphor, is the word used right, for, for perversion. Yet when the prophet talks about the destruction of stone, he says that they were, they were wiped out. They were wiped out in a cataclysmic fireball. They were, they were you know, the divine, miraculous, you know, proverbial wipeout. They were destroyed. Why do they merit such total absolute eradication, <coughs> almost unique in the history of the world. <coughs> so the Navi says, very surprisingly, because they didn't support the hand of those who were poor and destitute. They did not give charity. Now that is, that is an amazing statement. They were killed because they did not give charity? They did far worse things than that. Not giving charity is not a good thing. But it's nowhere near equivalent to the brutality. First of all, you know that giving charity is a positive commandment. The punishment for breaking negative commands in Torah is always far greater than for the omission of positive mitzvahs. You know that. It's true Kabbalistically that only the positive mitzvahs build things in the spiritual world. The observance of negative commands does not build anything. Not killing doesn't make anything. Every time I walk past you and don't slit your throat, I don't construct wonderful things in the spiritual world. I just avoid damaging them. When you walk past the local jewelry store and you don't heave a brick through the window, you definitely fulfill the mitzvah of thou shalt not steal. But you don't get a reward for that. You don't build marvelous spiritual worlds there. Whereas when you do the positive mitzvahs, you do build worlds. Every time you put on tefillin or you eat matzah or you do a positive mitzvah, you give charity. So there's no question that the positive mitzvahs are the ones that build the world. And the negative ones, when observed, do not build the world, generally speaking. But there's no question that the breaking of the positive is far less serious than the breaking of the negative. When you omit a positive commandment, are we together? When you fail to fulfill a positive command, you do far less damage in the world. On the contrary, you fail to build, that's all. But when you transgress a negative command, you break down. That's far more heinous, far more reprehensible. So the accusation of these people, surprisingly, is not that they did all these terrible, enormous, 
enormously bad and brutal things. The accusation is, they did not go beyond themselves and give to people who needed. For that they were destroyed. That's one question. Another question, again, there's a long list of questions that can bring out the same. I'll share with you one or two. Here's another question. Let's try and answer all of these questions with one, one theme that I hope brings out our point. It's a remarkable point. Humiliating how, how fundamental it is and how we don't realize it. Here's another question. The Gemara says that when you die, three angels come to greet you. Three malachim come towards you to greet you. Why three? One comes to add up all your mitzvahs. One comes to add up all your various, all your sins. And the third one comes to see the way it's put there in the sources. Is, Where's your Torah? And is it complete in your hand? What does Torah mean? For a man, primarily it means his learning. His essential learning. And for a woman, it means primarily her Torah application. Her outputting in the world, making the world a better place. Taking Torah and bringing it down into the practical expression. Which is generally speaking a woman's, a woman's work. That's the partnership. I'm not going to go down to the reason. But be that as it may, where is your Torah achievement as it were? Your, 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 your functional achievement as a Jew, manifesting Torah in the world, both in its learning and its application, where is that? There's a problem with this. There's a problem. Listen carefully. It's an amazing question. Why three angels? Why three? If the first one adds up all your positive acts, all your mitzvahs, and the second adds up all your negative acts, isn't that all there is? We have no concept of a neutral act in Judaism. If it's truly neutral, it's a waste of time, which is definitely negative. Definitely. It's called Bittul Torah, one of the seri- most serious crimes there is. So there's no neutral acts. So everything you did is either positive or negative. So if one angel counts up all your mitzvahs, and one angel counts up all your averis, what is left? What do you mean where your Torah is? If, first of all, Torah itself is a mitzvah. The, the, Torah learning is a mitzvah, which must have been counted already by the first one or the other. And Torah application in the world is a mitzvah, so they've certainly been counted. Do, do, do we share the question? Again, you know, there's positive and negative. There isn't anything else. Yeah, assuming there's no neutral. So why do you need a third angel over here? Do, do you hear the question? There are other varieties of this question. I'll share with you one more. Two more, yeah. Hillel. You know the great sage Hillel in the Talmud? The Talmud says that on one occasion he lacked a few pennies. That The, the custom was then to pay a few pennies to enter the study hall, to enter the yeshiva, enter the hall of learning. Yeah, he lacked a few. He was a woodcutter, although he was the great sage of Israel, up and coming, and he lacked a few pennies. And it was winter, but not wanting to miss the teaching that day, he lay on the skylight and put his ear to the, so that he could hear the great teachings of Shmaya Naftali and the two great leaders of the Jewish people that day. And in the morning, there was that room was dark, and they looked up and saw the silhouette of a man frozen in the snow, and they brought him down and narrowly, only narrowly, saved his life. By free, from uh, d- death by freezing. The question here is, why did he risk his life for that from which he was exempt? If he was not admitted. So, so yeah, risk his life? Yeah, there's a very serious Torah prohibition of risking your life. Why was he prepared to risk his life? Another version of this question, which affects you and me a little bit more, perhaps directly, is very perplexing question. Again, the Talmud says that when you leave this world and go to the next, after these three angels have come to greet you, you get judged. And you get asked a number of questions, many questions. One of the questions you get asked, one of the first questions is, did you involve yourself in Torah? Again, did you asakta, did you, did you give and take in, in, in Torah learning? Did you put your head into that, your, your mind and your body into Torah learning and application? That's a question. But here comes the surprise. What will you answer? What will you answer? So Talmud says, whatever you answer, you're going to be in trouble. Because let's say you'll say, I was too rich. Too rich? You, Hashem, you burdened me with a lot of wealth. Should happen, huh? (laughs) And I had a lot of obligation. It's a downright mitzvah to take care of your property and your possessions. You can't neglect them. And therefore, you gave me a lot of wealth, and I handled it responsibly. So I spent a lot of my life handling all my wealth. Hashem will say to you, no, you're not exempt. Were you wealthier than Revelozab and Chasim, one of the great... Tanaitic sages, sages of the Mishnah, who was so unbelievably wealthy, he owned cities and fleets of ships. He was so wealthy that the Talmud tells of an incident. I mean, he was wealthy, but he didn't spend his time taking care of his property. He spent his time wandering from one yeshiva in, in, in that part of the world to another to pick up all the wisdom that he could in an eclectic fashion from all the... Once he was wandering across an estate that was his, and he was arrested by the... the uh, 
the groundsman, the, 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 uh, whoever's in charge, not knowing that he was the owner of the state, arrested him because he was... Huh? Were you wealthier than he, who owned all these properties, and yet he prioritized his, his learning? Maybe you'll say you were too poor. Maybe you'll say, well, Hashem, I didn't learn much Torah because you gave me poverty, and I had to make an extreme effort to make a living to support my family. That for sure is a mitzvah. That for sure is a mitzvah. And therefore, I didn't prioritize my learning. So Hashem will say, were you poorer than, uh, than Hillel? Who lay on the skylight when he... Huh? And whatever you'll say, the Gemara goes on to say that I was too good looking. Too good looking. I was plagued by my, you know... But, okay. No doubt. All of you will say that. <laughs> and whatever you say, were you, yeah, were you more good looking than Joseph, who was tempted in more intense ways than you could have been, and he overcame his temptation? A lot of... The problem with this is like this. Let's take poverty as an example. It's clearly written in Jewish law that if you're poverty stricken, you have to go and make an effort to earn a living. It's written in the book. That's the law. <coughs> what sort of a court system asks you a question, you demonstrate that you fulfilled the law, and then they say, not good enough. Right. The statute has, are you with me? The statute book says you're obliged to learn Torah every available minute. If you need to earn a living, you have to close your book and go and earn a living. That's what it says. So you responsibly closed your book and you went out to make a living. When you present that in front of the court, they say, no, 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 there were people who were in that situation and they went beyond. I'm required to go beyond the letter of the law? What is the law book written for? If I can't hold that up, just something sounds very unjust here. You, you hear that? You hear that? The answer to these questions is as follows. A fascinating and very most fundamental point, which is, couldn't be more important. The answer is like this. There are two sets of obligations in Torah. One is what it says. One is what the statute book says. And then there's another set of obligations, which are not written, which are in fact more primary. And that set of obligations is giving of yourself entirely to reach your perfection. Moving out from yourself to the ultimate goal, which is achieving your perfection. The problem is, why doesn't it say it? If that's the First of all, let's, let's get things organized. Let's see how this... He answers the, answers the question. Right? What is it that you have to do which is beyond the letter of the law, but you have to do it, even though it's not the law? What does that mean? Let me give you an analogy. Let's assume you hire a maid. You hire a, a help. What do you call it? A char. Somebody to help you. Yeah? The lady arrives, and uh, she arrives at 8 o'clock in the morning, exactly on time, and she works hard until 5, and she leaves. After a few days of this, you notice some things are missing. Some things are missing. Some cash, items of clothing. A few things are missing. It happens. It happens. And you become aware that she has taken them. What is your response? What is your response? The answer is, it depends. It depends. You may discharge her. You may warn her. You may allow her to work and not put temptation in her way. There are ways to handle the situation. Scenario number two. You hire a lady to help you. The lady arrives at 8 o'clock in the morning, sits on a chair in the middle of the living room, and does not budge until 5. At 5 o'clock, exactly, not a second too soon, she gets up and leaves. The second day, the same thing. The third day, she arrives at 8 o'clock, not a second late, sits on a chair the whole day without moving, and leaves at 5. What is your response? You fire her. Why did you fire the lady? She never damaged anything, never broke a plate, she never stole anything. The answer is because she's not doing the job. She's not doing the job. The first person who's doing the job and doing damage, there's a debate. There's a weighing up. There's a question. The person who's not doing any damage but not doing the job is out. The message here is like this. You're employed in the world on a, two, on a two-tiered contract. One is to observe the letter of the law and not do any damage. And the second is to do the job. Get the job done. Right? Let's examine the people of Sodom, the people of Stoim, of Sodom, right? They did terribly heinous things. Terribly brutal things in the world. Terrible sins in the world. Does that mean Hashem wipes them out in a divine firestorm? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Maybe they'll get punished for that. They will get punished for that. But if they're achieving what they should be achieving, if there's output from that society, he debates the question. But when a society comes along that does not have any output, the philosophy in Stoim was, we give nothing. We only feed ourselves. What do I need them in the world for? The problem... Are we together? The problem is... The paradox is like this. A society could be enormously evil and be functional too. 
That means the world gets something from them. There's output, there's production. Hashem put up with them. He may put up with them. But on the other hand, there could be a society that isn't particularly evil. But it produces nothing spiritually. They disappear. Why? Because there are two obligations. One is do your duty and don't do any harm. And the second is produce. There's a job to be done. Let's go back to the second question. Three angels. The first one comes to add up all your mitzvahs, your duties. The second one comes up to add up all your averas. But there's a third thing. Who are you? Who are you? That is not subsumed by observing the technical laws. Give you an analogy. Hope this will make it clear. You have a load of goods to deliver to Edinburgh. Takes how long on a big truck? Two days? Good. You hire this fellow, you, t- you hire this big truck with a, with a competent driver, you load up the truck and you tell him, get these goods to Edinburgh and do it right. Don't speed, don't blow any tires, don't go over the white line, no speeding tickets, check the oil, check the... The fellow says, right, and he goes. Four days later, he gets back from Edinburgh. You say to him, how did it go? He says, fine, got no speeding tickets, check the tires, the engine's fine, truck undamaged, no speeding ticket. You say to him, to deliver the goods? I forgot. <laughs> you see, there's two issues here. There's the issue of observing the rules of the road, and there's another issue of delivering the goods and getting there. You can get so caught up with keeping the rules of the road that you can forget, you can be on the wrong road. This fellow could have been heading out to Brighton. But he did it right. He checked the tires, he checked the oil, and it didn't. It goes without saying, as you say, that, that, that the technicalities are only the means to the end, but there's delivering the goods. The Torah doesn't say deliver the goods. The Torah doesn't say deliver the goods. The Torah says observe the rules of the road. These are the rules. This is how not to damage the world, and this is how to produce. But the tachlis, that means who you end up, the Torah doesn't say that. It talks about the mitzvahs and the avaris, but there's a third angel who judges you. Why do they throw at you more than the book demands? You say, Hashem, I didn't learn Torah because uh, I was poor. I was sick. Hashem says, absolutely, let's close the book. Absolutely, that, you know, those are the rules. You can, but now let's look at who you are. Let's say you take a course of study, right? You undertake a, a, a year's course of study. And the first day, you're not feeling well, so you stay home. The second day, your mother needs help, so you help her. The third day, you've got another excellent reason your friend's getting married. You don't go. The whole year, you don't attend the course. And you've got superb reasons, definite obligations. In the end of the day, you'll be exempt. But you won't have the degree. And that's why when Hiddle couldn't afford to get into the yeshiva, and he knew he was exempt. But he had another concern. The first concern is, are you doing your duty? He's exempt from the duty. He could go home. But then who would he be? There's another thing you have to... Is this message? There's another thing you have to answer for. The first message is, did you keep the rules of the road? Did you drive properly? Did you keep the mitzvahs, etc., etc.? That's technical stuff. <coughs> but there's an output of all of that effort. And that is, who are you? And it's humiliating that we don't... You know what's really humiliating is that where it really hurts, we don't think about it at all. In any sensible activity, let's say business, people assess a goal, don't they? I mean, I'm not a businessman, but I assume what they do in the boardroom with those charts, you know, with the line that goes only up. (laughs) I assume what they do is... I assume what they do there is they set a goal and they have repeated meetings to see whether they... (coughs) methodologically Don't they do that? Or a person has a, takes a sport seriously, let's say. So he works at it, and he has a trainer, and he has a goal, and he measures his progress, I presume. No? Presume? So how come when it comes to the really important things like your marriage, or your life, you just sort of blondes on from day to day, sort of hoping more or less tomorrow won't be worse than yesterday? That's what most of us really do. You have a goal, and is it being assessed? I mean, there's no, you only get one chance. You think you'll end up and you'll say, look, I didn't, do, I didn't even kill too many people, I didn't do too many, didn't throw too many bricks through the jewelry store windows, and I, I did the technicalities. That's fine, and there's a lot of marks for that, no doubt. But the more important question, the more basic question is, now the question is, why didn't the Torah say that? Why doesn't the Torah say that? Surely in this contract, why doesn't the Torah talk about that? This is related to the question of why the Torah never mentions the world to come. Let's handle it from that perspective, just to show, shed light or bring an insight into this. You know, a classic... I hope the picture will, will, will emerge clearly here. You know, one of the... We discussed on many previous occasions different angles of this particular question. You know, the Torah never mentions its reward in the world to come. You know that it's axiomatic in Jewish thinking that you're living in order to achieve or arrive in a world that is eternal, which is an ecstatic, a purely ecstatic experience, which is the result of the work that you put in here. In fact, it's nothing else. It's not something you get given in consequence. It is what you become through your effort here. The, the mystery is the Torah never says that. 
all of the oral tradition is replete with many references to that. The prophets are full of different versions of that idea. And the Torah, the Torah itself never mentions that, never mentions the world to come. And what's worse is the Torah does purport to talk about reward. We just passed it, right? Very, you know, you know. In The Torah says, if you walk in my ways, walk again in my ways and keep my mitzvahs, then I will give you rain in its season and peace in the land. And, and then the commentary says it means peace in, in Israel. Not only, not only peace, no war, but no sword shall pass through, meaning not even on peaceful, not even, not even weapons, let alone war. Rain in its season, crops growing, etc., etc., etc. So the commentaries all talk about it. Rashi makes it clear. The Kliyokar has a wonderful discussion of this that he quotes from the Rabbanel. It's worth looking up. The question is here as follows. If the Torah would have omitted all reference to reward, it would have been one problem. But when the Torah does purport to talk about reward, and the only reward it stipulates is physical, that is tantamount to an admission that there's no world to come. After all, the contract says, here are your duties. The Torah spells out very clearly what your duties are from beginning to end. And then when it comes to the reward you'll be paid for keeping this program, the Torah says there will be a reward. What will it be? Crops and fruits and uh, animals will, 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 will be, and, uh, and rain in its season and the land will be wonderful and peaceful existence. That's all here. That's all physical. In fact, Rashi says that there were uh, detractors of Torah, attackers of Torah, who came along and said, you see, your own Torah admits that there's no world after this. Why? Because the Torah is honest enough to say that there is a reward. The reward is only that this world will run well. When you die and you leave this world, no mention because it does not exist. That's a fundamental question. Twofold question. Why does the Torah talk about reward? And when it does talk about reward, it doesn't talk about the real reward. It talks only about the finite, tangible existence in this world. To this question, which we're not going to go into fully now, there are many answers. There are at least seven classic answers, and there are at least three Kabbalistic answers beyond that. And if you want to reference it yourself, there's a wonderful summary. The Barbanel has an essay on seven of these assembled, seven classic answers to this fundamental question. And in very uh, uh, incredibly, um, beautifully summarized form, the Kli Yakar, in his commentary on the Chumash, goes through these seven. But I want to share with you just one answer <coughs> that he brings first, which is the Rambam's answer to this question, because it's relevant to our subject this evening. Although, obviously, the whole subject needs to be dealt with fully. The Rambam says the following thing. You know why the Torah doesn't mention the next world? <coughs> because the reason for working for the next world should be out of love. If the Torah stipulated a reward then you would be working for the reward. That would not be a spontaneous, self-motivated, self-initiated act. And not the, the deeper commentaries add a, 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 a touch here, which is that if the Torah mentioned the next world, not only would you be tempted to work for the reward, you would be obliged to work for the reward. Because since everything the Torah says is obligation, you know, we have an axiom that whatever the Torah says, even if it appears to be a merely historical comment, we take to be obligation. The whole Torah. I mean, that's an extreme, extreme example would be, it says, Our days are like a passing shadow. On which the commentary says, what's the obligation of that statement? Our days are like a passing shadow. That's poetic. It, it's, you know, it's, it, no, no, it's an obligation. Make every day count. In other words, every statement in Torah is still an obligation. And therefore, if the Torah spoke about a world after this, you would in some way be obliged to work for a world after this. Says the Rambam, that's not love. Love is you do because of the love, not because it's a contractual salary. The second question is, so then why does the Torah mention reward in this world? Says the Ramam, that's not reward, that's expenses. That part of the contract is simply your expense account. When you work for a company, there's two clauses when it comes to payment. One clause is salary. But then there's another clause. We pay your expenses. You can stay at expensive hotels and you can wine and dine the clients. You better be careful that you're bringing in more revenue than we're spending on your expense account, otherwise you had it. But we don't mind. You can stay at the most luxurious, because whatever you need, as long as you generate business, that counts for more than your expenses. When the Torah says that you will have all the beauty and peace and, and bounty of this world, all it means is that Hashem guarantees you expenses. You do what you're supposed to do, He gives you the tools. Why not? Well, why not? If you keep all the mitzvahs, you do what you're supposed to. You're guaranteed all your expenses. This, incidentally, is why our great righteous individuals always lived very cheaply. <coughs> you know that. 
They always wanted to be sure that they were generating more revenue spiritually than they were costing. The Chavetz Chaim never had backs to his chairs. You know that. The Chavetz Chaim never owned a shas. He never owned the whole Talmud. He didn't need to. He knew it by heart. But nevertheless, he never owned a... When one wealthy businessman from Vienna passed through, the classic, classic illustration, he passed through Radden. He went to visit this great sage of the Jewish people. He was shocked to walk into this very, very simple environment. He said, Rabbi, leader of the Jewish people, where's all your wealth? The Chavetz Chaim said to him, where's all yours? He said, back in Vienna, where I'm going, I have plenty of wealth. The Chavetz Chaim said, where I'm going, I also have plenty. <laughs> but he lived very cheaply, the Chavetz Chaim. He didn't want to take more out of the world than he was generating. But that's the principle. The principle is that's expenses. Reward, salary, not expenses, that's a different dimension entirely. That the Torah doesn't mention because if you... Why are we allowed to know about it? There's no problem knowing about it. You should know that there's reward. But don't do it for the reward. If you have a love between two people, or a friendship between two people, and you love, you you do for your friend because you love them. If you do for your friend because you know if you do, in a marriage, if a person treats their partner, their spouse, correctly, there are two possible motivations. Either because you love them and you do it because you love them, or because you know when you treat her correctly, she's very sweet to you. That may be nice and decent and make for a peaceful existence, but that's not love. That's a mercenary motivation. When you're nice to someone because if you are, they're nice to you, that is not mature. That's not love. That's not a love. And therefore, the Torah omits that. It's true that if you treat them well, it is also sweet for you. And there's no harm knowing that. On the contrary, love should feel good. Ravasaman used to say that if it doesn't feel good, it's not love. If it's all duty and not pleasure, it's not love. But there's a sensitivity here that you can know that it's rewarding for you, but that should not be the starting point. It should be done because... What do we see? That the Torah omits that information. And in similar vein, the Torah omits the obligation to be a spontaneously giving individual. Because because if the Torah said it, it would be a duty. And therefore, it is a duty. It's the primary duty. There's a special angel who tests you on that. They throw the book out when you've, when you've dealt with the book and they ask you that question. A society is wiped out because it doesn't address that obligation. Of course it's primary. Of course it's an obligation. Chesed is an obligation. To be a chassid, a chassid means, you know the definition of a chassid? A tzaddik is the person who does what he's obliged to do. Tzaddik, you do what you're obliged. Tzaddik doesn't mean righteous. Tzaddik means you do exactly what you're obliged to do. No less, but no more. Chassid, a chassid means does more than he's obliged. Chesed means giving of yourself. Giving beyond what's obliged. Is it a Torah obligation to be a chassid? It's probably the primary obligation. That's, mer- that's the pattern of the world. It's olam chesed yiboni. The world is built on kindness and you have to emulate that pattern. Why doesn't the Torah say so? Because then it would be, then it would be an obligation. And therefore, in summary, what we studied this evening is that the, the message here is that the, what we've been taught here by this incident of the, the Nassim, they brought their gifts. They had previously brought their gifts as a response to a need. Ultimate response to a need. Let's see what lacks, and we fill a lack. That's tzedek. That's duty. It's fine. But it's not chasidus. Chasidus means, even before we know that there will be a need, we want to give. Of course it's a mature giving. It's not because we want to give because we selfishly want to give, because we want the pleasure of the giving or to prove it. Or No. We want to give what's needed. But we want to give before the need. And therefore, and therefore this, is the ultimate, this is the ultimate step of maturity. It means a going beyond the self, a giving of self. And the twofold, or the perhaps paradoxical output here, is that there's a giving to where the need is genuine, but because there's a spontaneous desire to give. And ultimately, what's arrived at is nothing other than the shlemus, the perfection of the individual who's giving. That means that the paradox is that I give of myself selflessly, and I give, I have a primary drive to give, and I want to manifest that fully, and I want to give where it's needed, because I want to give that. And, I, and ultimately, what that develops is my own perfection. To become a chassid is an individual, means, the striving here is to become an individual who is both commanded and yet finds within himself or herself the spontaneity of genuine giving. What is the result? That the output is generated, the world gets what it needs, and paradoxically, the self is developed. 
if there's one message that, that needs to be internalized in the pre-Messianic chaos, which, in case you hadn't noticed, is, is heavily underway, then this is the message. You have to learn Torah. You have to learn Torah because that's a primary mitzvah and because you won't know your obligations otherwise. Neither the technical obligations nor this one of being a chassid. And in acts of kindness, right? Those are the two methodologies that are the, two, the two-fold program of meeting the pre-Messianic difficulty. You're not doing them because you don't want to suffer the pre 